The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. I appreciate you being with us this morning. We're going to talk about abiding and the second coming of Christ. Uh, Jeff was joking me this morning. He goes, abiding in the second coming? He goes, you can find the second coming everywhere, can't you? (laughs) That's what my wife says. I think you've been talking to her, okay? But no, uh, hopefully you'll see how this fits together, all right? Uh, And this is part one. (laughs) All right, we're going to continue our study of 1 John this morning. Let me just remind you that this is not like the gospel. The purpose of the gospel was to bring people to faith in Christ. The purpose of this epistle is what? Fellowship is to bring believers into fellowship with the Lord. All right, that's what this is about. How to have fellowship, how to abide in Christ, how to walk with Christ. Now, we ended our last study with verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Now, the Antichrists, the opponents, were denying that Yeshua was the Christ. We saw that in verse 22. But the promise of eternal life is only available to those who believe that Yeshua is the Christ. And it's this very promise that is being called into question by these antichrists. So John reassures his readers that the promise is valid for them. This is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Then he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now John concludes his attack on the false teachers in verse 26 and 27 with a warning and a word of encouragement for his followers. The words trying to are not in the Greek text. They're not in there. They've been added by the translators. I think they're actually justified here because the readers have not been deceived. They have not been moved away, but these people were trying to do that to them. He says, I write these things, this is a reference to everything he has written concerning the opponents that is in this present letter. He's writing them about these opponents to warn them. He says, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now, this is really the first time in the letter where John makes it clear that the readers are being targeted by the Antichrist in order to deceive them. This reference to deceivers immediately follows verse 25 and it shows that the Antichrist were teaching a doctrine of salvation that was different from the one the readers had heard from the beginning, he said in verse 24. They denied that Yeshua was the Christ, a belief that we've been saying over and over is necessary for eternal life. And we saw this in our study of the Gospel. Here is the purpose of the Gospel of John. John 20, 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. To deny that Yeshua is the Christ is to not have eternal life. One of the author's primary purposes in writing 1 John is to protect the faithful followers from this false Christology that these opponents are teaching. They will ruin them if they buy into this teaching. Now the you of verse 26 indicates, it tells us, that it's possible for believers to be deceived by false teaching. Because he's writing to Christians. And I'm writing these things to you so you don't get deceived. 
John doesn't want them to be deceived and thus lose their fellowship with the Lord. See, they can't have fellowship with God while they walk in darkness, the darkness of false doctrine. He said in 1 John 1.6, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. You know, Paul warned, T- warned Timothy of this very same danger in 2 Timothy 3.13. He says, While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there were people out there, they were deceiving. He goes on and he exhorts Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Now, the word here, continue, is the Greek word mano. Alright, this is the word John uses for abide. Timothy was to abide in the word that he had been taught, the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings, the scripture, from the beginning. So Paul is saying the same thing that John is saying, and that is that we need to abide in the word of God if we're going to abide in Christ. Alright? We need to read the word of God. Over and over and over. We're to know it so well that we can spot something that's wrong. You hear false teaching, and most people are like, uh, if you know the Word of God, you know, wait a minute, that doesn't jive with what I know. We're to be at home in the Word. The Word is to be at home in our lives. It's like when someone pokes you, Bible verses come out. Okay, You know just what, how to react to a situation because you know those verses. To avoid spiritual deception, we need to develop discernment by abiding in the Word of God, especially with regard to the truth of the Gospel. That's what he's talking about here. They need to, he keeps going back to what you've heard from the beginning. Hang on to that. Don't buy into this new teaching that's going around. He says in verse 27, But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Now, the but here is contrasting the believing readers with the Antichrist. The Antichrist didn't have the anointing. The false teachers were most likely claiming that they had some special anointing, some secret knowledge that the rest didn't have, and they were kind of offering it to them. John asserts that all believers already have the true anointing. He says, you received it. This is an heiress active indicative which points to a completed past act. When they trusted Christ, they received the Spirit, and the anointing here that we've talked about this already in verse 20 is the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing they received. The term anointing is chrisma in Greek and is etymologically related to the term Messiah, which is Christos. So you have Chrisma Christos. Here it refers to the Holy Spirit's ministry of enlightening the heart and mind to the Gospel. This anointing is not the private property of a few special Christians. All right? it, it's not, you know, okay, a few Christians have the anointing and the rest don't have it. No, that's not what it's about. All Christians have the presence of God's Spirit within them. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. Now he says, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. This is similar to what he said in verse 20. He said in verse 20, you all have knowledge. 
You know, what's funny is Christians have taken and used this verse to argue that we don't need human teachers. Okay? We don't need anybody to teach us. Well, if John was not saying the church doesn't need godly teachers to instruct the flock, if that were his meaning, it'd invalidate this entire letter. You know, you don't need this if you don't need teaching. But people will take this verse and say, see, we don't need anybody to teach us. Well, that's fine if you're highly educated and you know a lot about history and language and you know you got all that down, then you know you don't need anybody to teach you, okay? Not too many of us are there. John means that they do not need the, the elite gnosis that these false teachers thought they had, the secret knowledge of God. Rather, he says every Christian has the indwelling Holy Spirit to enable him or her to understand and interpret Scripture. Now, what about the spiritual gift of teaching? Do we still need that today? Is the spiritual gift of teaching still available today? Got this. <laughs> Listen, let's think about this, all right? Because this is a big controversial area, you know? I mean, he says we don't need teachers, so people say we don't need to give to teaching. Okay? If spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit... That's what they would be, right? When the Spirit manifests Himself, let's say in teaching, would that teaching always be the same? I mean, would it always be accurate teaching? And would it not change? Would the Holy Spirit say, oh, I taught this before. Let me tell you, we've got to change. We've got to go over this direction, right? Does that make any sense? Is He going to change His mind? Yahweh never changes. So the Spirit's teaching would never alter. Which means, if I had the gift of teaching, would I teach Arminianism for years and then later say, no, I think Calvinism's the way. Well, who made the mistake? Me, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doors are going to blame me. You're throwing me under the bus, huh, Dora? Thank you. <laughs> would I teach futurism for years and all of a sudden say, you know, I think preterism is true. Listen, if, the, if it's a spirit-enabled gift, you're not going to change. You're going to know what's true and what's right. If it's a manifestation of the Spirit. Those in the first century didn't change, okay? They taught, they kept, they were on the same plane. And they taught the same thing. And that is why today everybody has a million different opinions because the gift of teaching, all the gifts, I believe, ended in AD 70. You know, just as the manna ended when the Exodus ended, when Israel got into the land, so the miraculous gifts ended when the second exodus ended and the church arrived at the new heavens and new earth in AD 70. What event ended the first exodus period? What city got destroyed? Right, it was the destruction of Jericho. See, Jericho stood at the entrance of the promised land, this fortified city that represented a serious challenge to Israel's claim to the land. It's fall telegraphed a message that, hey, our God is God, and this is ours now, okay? So there was the fall of the city. Well, what marked the end of the second exodus? I very good class. It was another city, Jerusalem. See, Old Covenant Judaism was a major problem for those early believers. Nothing represented the old system better than the temple. Here was where the presence of God dwelt. His presence assured them that they were His people. But 40 years after the cross, in AD 70, believers fled the city of Jerusalem as the walls fell, the city was destroyed and burned. 
And when the 40-year exodus ended, so did the spiritual gifts. Don't need them anymore, people. We're not in the age of the miraculous now. John goes on to say, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Now, the reference here about everything has to be kept in context, okay? We're not talking about medicine or science or history. We're talking about the fact that Yeshua is the Christ. The Gospel. That's what he's, he doesn't say, you know, okay, you, you've been anointed, you know everything. Some people think they do, but no, that's not what this is talking about, okay? And Yeshua called him the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 17, which is, I think, behind John's words here, is true and is no lie. This means that the truth of the Gospel is not a subjective matter of personal interpretation. It's not something that I see one way and you see the other way, but both ways are right. No, it doesn't work that way. It's objective. It's absolutely true in every culture and every age, and you must believe it to be saved, and any contradiction of the Gospel is a lie. The Gospel is important. We have to defend it. We have to stick to it, not alter it. And today, it's, you know, the church is trying to change the Gospel. So the Holy Spirit's our teacher, and we need to remember that He uses the Word of God as His textbook. The Spirit always works in conjunction with the Word of God. He does not give direct revelation today on the par of Scripture. Are you thankful for that? I am, because if, if it was happening today, then someone in Texas got a word from the Lord, well, we need to get that so we can add it to our Bibles, okay? Because we need to add to the Word. And you know, and this guy over here, here's this, and this guy, and you're like, wow, you know, you just keep You don't have to do any of that. Because it's, it's done. It's written, and it's once for all delivered to the saints, and we have it. And so we just, the Spirit is going to use the Word of God as His teacher and to guide us. So if it's not in there, people, don't worry about it. People are going to come to you and tell you, well, you know, you the, the Bible says this, and just say, where? Usually they'll leave. Because they don't know where, okay? They don't know where. They just heard it somewhere, and so they think it's in there. And there's some strange things that people think are in there. And it's funny, I love when people say it to me, well, you know what the Bible says? And I said, no, it doesn't. And they're like, like, that's a bold statement to say that, you know? I'm like, I've read it. <laughs> it doesn't say that, you know? All right, John concludes this section by saying, just as it has taught you abiding in Him. Now, abiding in Him appears to refer to abiding in the anointing. And grammatically, that's possible. However, the exhortation to abide in Him is repeated in the next verse, and the abiding there is in Yeshua. So I think that's what he is talking about here. Now, the verb mano here, abide, can be read as either indicative mood, you abide in Him. And the New American Standard has it that way, the NET has it that way. Or it could be translated in the imperative mood, as a command, abide in Him. The NIV has it that way. ESV has it that way. The same verb is found in the following verse, 28. But the address to the readers there seems to indicate clearly an imperative. So an indicative is slightly more likely, I think, on contextual grounds here in 27. Up to this point, the thrust of the author has been reassurance rather than exhortation. As an indicative here, you abide in Him makes more sense. Just as it has been taught you, you abide in Him. Okay? 
John uses abide five times in verse 24 and 27 as we've seen. This is his term for fellowship. This is his term for maintaining a close personal relationship with the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit be at home in your life and you be at home in the area of His Word is what he's telling us here. Now we move into verse 28 here. It says, And now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. All right, we're only going to get through half of this verse today, and we'll pick it up next week, okay? Because it's just, there's stuff in here you got to see, all right? <laughs> First of all, there's a lot of discussion among commentators whether a new paragraph should begin in verse 28, 29, 31. It's hard to know whether 28 is best taken as a conclusion of the previous section or as the beginning of the next one. Well, I'm going to take 28 as beginning a new section. The warning against the Antichrist is now finished. He's done talking about them. And this section, which I think runs from 228 to 419, constitutes the body of the letter. That this is a unit, I think, is clear from the structural inclusio. Now, in literature, an inclusio is a literary device based on a concentric principle known as bracketing or an envelope structure, which consists of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a section. So it just kind of brackets it. So notice in verse 28, he says, We may have confidence at His coming. And then drop down to 417. We may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, the second coming and the Day of Judgment are synchronous events. Alright? So he is wrapping this section in these thoughts. And so these thoughts are contained in this major section here. We have confidence at the Second Coming. That brackets this whole section. Alright? Now some see verse 28 as a Janus. Anybody ever heard of that? A Janus? A Janus means that the thing looks in two directions. It looks backward, it looks forward. Backward to summarize the preceding section, forward to introduce the new section. Um, Janus was a Roman god of beginnings and endings who supposedly guarded portals. He had two faces, one in the front, one on the back. Uh, the month of January gets its name from this god. It is a month in which we look backward on the past year and we look forward to the new year. So again, there's a lot of different discussion on you know, how to bracket, how to section off this thing, but we're going to take verse 28 as beginning a new section here. He says, and now little children, and I really think that now goes back to verse 18, it's the last hour. Now he's talking about the second coming here. He says, now little children. And little children is from the Greek technia. Alright? We've talked about this before. It literally means offspring of any age. So when he speaks of children, it doesn't mean little infants or adolescents. He's not speaking about age or experience. He's talking about, in a generic sense, how we are all the offspring of God no matter what age we are. That's the emphasis here. Children of God. That's what he's saying. All right. In other words, it's speaking of those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. Those who have been partakers of the new nature through the new birth. Little children, and then he says this, abide in Him. Now, hopefully you recognize this is what we saw last week in John 15. Remember we looked at John 15 last week? Verse 3, he says, Now you are clean through the word which I've spoken to you. And clean there had the idea of you're born again, you're saved, you're redeemed. All right. And then in verse 4 he said, Abide in me. So he told the clean, the believers, to abide. Exact same thing here. Little children, believers, 
abide in Him. He's telling believers to abide. This is a present active imperative. Believers are commanded to abide, which means it must be something different than believing. Many people don't see it any different from believing. But what is he saying here? Believers believe. No, he's telling those who believe to abide. And this is what I've been saying over and over. This is a, this is a different experience. All right, This is a call to discipleship. This is a call to be a follower of Yeshua, to live in fellowship with Yahweh. Little children, abide. That's what this whole epistle is about, fellowship. That's what the stress here. Now, the fact that believers are commanded to abide in Him applies that, implies that we're active in that. Okay, We do something. Well, what exactly does abiding involve? We've talked about this a lot, but we need to keep talking about it because this is something that I think is very important. We saw last week it involves the Word of God. In John 15, 4, Yeshua said, Abide in Me, and I in you. Then in verse 7, He said, If you abide in Me, and My words abide in you. So in verse 7, the phrase, My words abide in you, is substituted for the phrase in verse 4, I in you. So we could say that for Christ to abide in us is for His Word to abide in us. See, it's, this is not something mystical. You just sit around and contemplate your navel. No, you spend time in the Word of God. That's why it's so important for Christians to spend time in the Bible. It's critical, people. You can't abide in Christ if His Word does not abide in you. Do you get that? So you say, oh, I'm just having trouble with my walk with the Lord. Are you spending time in the Word of God? That's how He teaches us. You've got to spend time in it. So you can't ignore the Word of God and abide in Christ. And I don't count, and I don't think God does either, our daily bread. Okay? Not a fraction of a verse and someone's comment. I'm talking about reading the Bible over and over and over. Because when His words abide in us, He's abiding in us. That's so significant for the Christian life. Earlier in the fourth Gospel, Yeshua said this, Whoever feeds on My flesh and drinks on My blood abides in Me, and I in Him. Abides there. See, we feed upon Him by going to the Word of God and making it part of our life. And as we feed upon the Word of God and reflect upon the things that we find in the Word of God, we enter into communion and fellowship with Him as He abides in us. I think one of the problems with the church today is we have lost the art of meditation. You know, when is the last time you took a passage of Scripture and you just sat there and you went over it and you thought about it? You said, how does this affect my life? What does this mean to my life? And you just went over it, communing with God in quiet, just the two of you. Yeshua goes on to say in John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. The very practical indication of abiding in Christ is living obedience to His commands. See, as you spend time in the Word of God, you see things, and then you do those things. Now, if you ignore them, that's not too good, alright? So, abiding in Him is spending time in the Word. It's obeying His commands. It's also... This is, this is one that gets us, okay? But if you want to abide, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. 
Yeah, that trips us all, doesn't it? See, if you claim to be abiding in Christ, then you need you need to look like Christ. I don't mean long hair and a robot, you know, not some artist, you know, version. I mean you need to look like him in your treatment of fellow people. You know, you can say to me or somebody, I believe the gospel. And all I have is your word. I can't prove that, I can't disprove it. But if you tell me I'm abiding in Christ, then we got something to talk about. Because I can verify that. Because either you're living it and I see it or I can't. Alright? Abiding in Christ. Abiding is abundantly evident. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So abiding in Him is spending time in the Word of God. It's living in obedience to the things we see in the Word of God. It's walking as Christ walked. It's loving our brothers and sisters. Abiding in Him, I think, is the same thing we see throughout the Scripture called walking in the Spirit or fellowshipping with Christ. It's what Jude calls keep yourselves in the love of God. These writers say it different ways, but they're talking about the same thing. John says the children, believers, are to abide in Him. Why? So that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from Him in shame at His coming. Now, John here is telling the believers to abide in Him, and then in the Greek it's henna. This is a purpose clause. Abide in Him so that... Why am I abiding? So that when He appears... You can have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. Now that's interesting. In the fu- this, this is the future appearing of Yeshua that John has in mind when he urges his readers to abide. It's a motive for abiding the Lord's return. Now, so that when he appears and at his coming, those are talking about the second coming of Christ. You got that, right? There's, I, don't, I haven't come across anybody that wants to argue that. No one says, no, this is not talking about that. So everyone's clear on what this is talking about. When he appears is literally if he appears. It's a third class conditional sentence. Well, and there's some argument about that. Is it actually, you know, Greek grammarians go back and forth on that. But if there's uncertainty here, it's not about the fact of his coming, it's about the exact timing. Okay? The day and the hour is questioned. That's not, you know, again, people talk about, well, we don't know the day or the hour. It's like when a woman gets pregnant. You don't know the day or the hour, but you got a, a kind of a good estimate there, right? Huh? You, around nine months, something's going to happen. It's the same with the second coming. You don't know the day or the hour, but you, we know really closely when it was supposed to happen. All right? The word appears here comes from the Greek phanerao. The appearing, the arrival. It's used of the incarnation, the birth of Christ. It's used of the resurrection as well in the New Testament. Here it clearly refers to the return of Yeshua in the future from the reader's perspective. Paul uses the same word in Colossians. He says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Clearly talking about the second coming. This is an eschatological verse. Now the futurists look at this verse and they say, you know, when the Lord returns someday in the future, we're going to be revealed with Him in glory. Problem is, the Lord's already returned, so whatever it's talking about already happened. And that's where you know people have a problem with that. All right. The word coming here, again, parousia, is used extensively elsewhere in the New Testament, but only here in the Johannian writings. 
Now, the term parousia occurs in the New Testament in a non-technical sense to refer to someone's arrival in general. You know, we think of parousia and we think automatically second coming, but it's used in 1 Corinthians 16, 17. I rejoice at the parousia of Stephanatus. Oh, he's got a second coming too? It doesn't actually mean second coming. It means presence. It means arrival. All right, we've talked about that in the past. You know, they, the disciples didn't understand the Lord was coming back because they didn't know he was going. They were talking about his presence, his arrival. This word is used of Yeshua's incarnate presence in 2 Peter 1.16. It's used of the future coming of the lawless one, the parousia of the lawless one, 2 Thessalonians 2.9. It's used of the coming day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3.12. But by and far, its most frequent use in the New Testament is a reference to Christ's coming. This is the only occurrence of the word parousia in the Johannian writings, but its use is probably explained by the wordplay between parousia, which is confidence, and parousia, coming. You know, John likes to play those games like that, the word games, and I think that's what he's saying. You will have parousia at his parousia. All right? Now, this is literally until the parousia, which means presence. It was, it was used of a royal visit. To John's readers, the parousia of the Son of Man signified the full manifestation of His Messiahship, His glorious appearing in power. William Barclay says of parousia, it is the regular word for the arrival of a governor into his province or the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority and in power. Now, the second coming of Christ is a major theme of Scripture. Y'all recognize that? James Boyce writes that in the New Testament, one verse in 25 deals with the Lord's return. It is mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters. That's the New Testament, people, 260 chapters. So in the New Testament, it's mentioned 318 times. It is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books with the exception of Galatians, and I'd maybe argue that, which deals with a particular doctrinal problem in the very short books of 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. So he's saying that this is a major subject here. Ray Stedman writes this, Perhaps you've recognized in reading your Bible that this is the most frequently mentioned truth in all the New Testament. This great hope of the appearing again of Jesus Christ underlies every other truth in the New Testament. It is found on almost every page of our New Testament. So the second coming of Christ is a very important subject. It's an important doctrine. It's something that I think we should understand. I mean, if it's that major, don't you think we should understand it? Here's what's mind-blowing to me. Michael Heiser says, I don't care about eschatology. Like, how do you not care about something that's such a major doctrine? He said, we shouldn't get hung up on it. Well, I guess if you don't understand it, you want to say stuff like that. But, you know, how can we ignore something mentioned so often in the New Testament? How can we not understand something that's mentioned 318 times in the New Testament? All right, what I want to do, because we're talking about the second coming, I want to give you John MacArthur's view of the second coming. Now, I'm doing this not to pick on MacArthur. I'm doing it because MacArthur is a major player in the church today. 
He's got a very large church, a mega church. He's got a ton of books out there. He's on a lot of radio stations. People know MacArthur. They listen to MacArthur. And MacArthur's view is a view that is a popular view today. You would say probably say most Christians fit into this view. So I want to look at his view and kind of break it down. Now, I'm taking this right from his stuff, okay? And, and Jeff, can you put a link under the YouTube video for this? So that people can, I want you to fact check me, okay? I want you to go to MacArthur's thing, read through it, listen to what he says, because he's going to say something that you're not going to believe, all right? So you got to look at it yourself, all right? Well, MacArthur writes this. This is a future event. He's talking about the Perusi. He's talking about from this text from John. This is a future event, okay? So right away we know he's still waiting for this, all right? He reads this and he says, this is future. I'm thinking we missed something along the way which will culminate all of human history. All right? So that tells us when it happens, guess what? It's the end of human history. We're done. Everything's done. It's all finished. Okay? That's, what, that's his view of it. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ, manifestly, visibly, to reveal Himself to His people, to make His people like Him, and to bring His people into eternal glory. Now, there are four elements to His appearing, and I just want to kind of spread those out before you for a little bit so you'll understand them. First of all, He will come for His saints. Count them. How many comings is that so far? Second comings? That's one, right? He's going to come for His saints. This is what's called in Scripture the catching away or the rapture of the church. The second phase of it is He will appear with His saints. We believe that the Bible tells us that after He has come for His saints and taken us out of the world, all who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will leave in that wonderful event. On the earth, after we're gone, there will be a time of tribulation, a time of great tribulation. But the end of that period called the tribulation, the Lord will return this time with His saints. I count two second comings so far, right? Or maybe a second and a third coming. Or maybe a second coming part A and part B. But He came already for His saints. Now He's coming with the saints. The saints, that already came, the saints He already came for. He comes back with them. Matthew 24 describes the feature of it appearing in Matthew 24. So, again, I'm not sure I understand. You know, and again, I used to teach this. I didn't understand it then. <laughs> I still don't understand it because it doesn't seem to jive with Scripture. MacArthur goes on to say, So He comes for His saints, with His saints, to reign through His saints, and then forever spends eternity among His saints. Now, all of that is coming of the revealing of Jesus Christ, and there are four elements to it, four features, four aspects, the rapture of the church, the return and judgment, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, and the creation of the eternal state, the new heaven and new earth, and we live in light of this. This is the next event on God's calendar. This is the next event in prophecy. There is no prophecy that needs to come to pass before the Lord comes for His saints. That's why we say His coming is eminent. It could happen any time. It's the next event. Well, let me tell you something. The next event on God's calendar. Anybody know what God's calendar is? He's given it to us. It's called the Feast of Israel. It's a prophetic calendar. And in the fall, He has the trumpets, the atonement, and booths. And they take place 40 years after the spring feasts of Passover, Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Pentecost. 
But there's no thousands of years in between these feasts. There is a gap of 40, but there's not a thousands of years. So God does have a calendar, but it's not this one that He's talking about. He says, there are no signs leading up to the rapture of the church. It is a signless event. It happens when we don't expect it. We live in light of it. And then it initiates and inaugurates all those features of His glorious revealing. Let me ask you something. How can Christ's coming be eminent when Matthew 24 connects His coming with the destruction of the Jewish temple? We've looked at that recently, right? In Matthew 24. See, the disciples connected the fall of the temple and the end of the age. They're standing there looking at it, and they're pointing out the buildings, and the Lord said, not one of these stones will be left standing upon another. And they're like, when? When will this happen? When will the temple be destroyed? When is the end of the age? And when is your coming? They connected all those things together. So how could the destruction of the temple be eminent today when there's no temple to destroy? But when you see, look at what Luke says about this. Now, I want to show you how Luke connects the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Lord. They all, the gospel writers do this, except John, he, he does it in Revelation. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, now here's what you've got to take in mind. He's not writing to some 21st century Christian sitting in an American church with their Bible. When you see it, the people he's talking to, surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. You get that? Bunch of armies, we're going to get wiped out. Okay, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Christ is talking to real people in the first century. This is referring to the coming Christ. We see that in verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here's one of the biggest problems we have today. We read this, then you'll see the Son of Man coming on a cloud. And we picture some man standing on a white, puffy cloud, riding like a surfboard. That's what the American person gets in their mind. Because they don't understand. A cloud, God coming on a cloud is judgment. That's what that means. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in judgment. On what? The city that we just talked about getting destroyed. The coming of the Son of Man, the destruction of the temple, they happen together. So let me ask you, how is it eminent when there isn't a temple to destroy? Doesn't the temple have to be rebuilt so it can be redestroyed? But there's a problem. The temple site's occupied right now by the Mosque of Omar, the Dome of the Rock. So, first of all, we've got to get rid of that thing. Okay? What's that going to cause? You talk about a holy war, okay? Israel's going to have to wipe out the Muslims to get that thing down. They're going to have to do it. I guess they could, if they did it in seven years, it would maybe fall into MacArthur's time frame. Okay, the Lord takes the people out. You know, now we got this tribulation. That would be a great tribulation for them because there would be bloodshed. Okay, they get this down. Then they have to rebuild another temple. The last one took them 43 years, so they only got not long to get, depends on how fast they get this war over. 
They build another temple, then it has to be destroyed. So how is that eminent? All right, John goes on to say, it always bothers me that you can talk to people who are very precise about their understanding of the Bible, very precise about their understanding of theology. When you ask them a question about eschatology, that's from eschatos, which means the end or the last. When you ask them about the last things and how the story ends, they don't have a clue. I had to smile when I read that. I'm like, John, you don't have a clue. Okay? (laughs) But he goes on, it's seriously disturbing to me that so many don't care about how the story ends. Why do you think the whole book of Revelation was written? Why was it written? He says, so that you can know how the story ends. That's why it was written. So you can join in praise that's going on in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. I'm glad I know how God ends the story, and I can praise Him for what is coming. All right, he talks about the book of Revelation, which was written to first century believers. I think he would agree with that, okay? It's written to first century believers to show them things which must shortly come to pass. You know, our culture is so into Revelation. It's so exciting. Look at What do you think about this? I think the first question is, who's that written to? And they look at you like, what do you mean? Who's it, who's it written to? It says right in the book, first chapter, who's it written to? The seven churches in Asia Minor, and it names every one of them. Okay? So that tells us this is who it's written to. In the first century. And he starts out by saying this, the revelation of Yeshua the Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must soon take place. Hmm. Wonder why he said that. Soon take place. And, that, you know, they just, I guess, soon doesn't, you know, I'm not sure what it means, but, you know, the writer here, Lazarus, emphasized this truth in a variety of ways through language. He carefully varies the manner of his expressions as if to avoid confusion. I don't want you to think, you know, I don't want to say it one way, so you'll miss it. The Greek word translated shortly here or soon in 1-1 is takos. And according to Art and Gingrich's lexicon, takos is used in the Septuagint and the non, in certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. John uses the same word in Revelation 2.16, 3.11, 22, in chapter 22, he uses this word in 6, 7, 12, and 20. The, t- the idea of time brackets this book. He also uses the Greek word engos, which means near. We see that in verse 3. Blessed are the ones who read aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep what is written, for the time is near. He says this also in 22.10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words for the prophecy of this book because the time is near. It speaks of temple nearness and he uses this to bracket the whole book of Revelation. The third word he uses is mellow, translated about to. We see that in Revelation 1.19. I use Young's here because Young's accurately translates it. Write the things that thou hast seen and the things that are and the things that are about to come after these things. They're about to come. It's soon. It's at hand. He's going through great lengths to try to say, 
To the people he's writing to, it's going to be quick. Now, if we apply the principle of audience relevance, what did the original readers think when they read this? John strategically, i, I got to quit using both. Let me say Lazarus, because I don't want you to get you confused with MacArthur we're talking about. All right. Lazarus strategically places these words at the introduction and conclusion of the book. He is telling the seven churches to expect these things shortly. They're not in our future. They are ancient history to us. John MacArthur goes on to say, but lately there have been some traditionally conservative, professedly Bible-believing Christians that have attacked the doctrine of Christ's return. The appearing. This view is gaining tremendous momentum. It is called preterism, hyperpreterism, or realized eschatology. And I'm amazed to see some of the names of people who are lining up with this. Now, when he talks about the names of the people lining up, he's talking about partial preterism. Okay? That's what he's, he's throwing at. See, preterism there means partial preterism to MacArthur. Hyperpreterism means us, full preterists, and realized eschatology, that's us too. But, you know, he's throwing them all you know, together in the thing there. He goes on to say, this hyperpreterism, this realized eschatology, bases itself on one verse of the Bible. Realized eschatology. Listen, this man saying this from the pulpit, over the airwaves, in books, bases itself on one verse of the Bible. Did you know that? Has he ever talked to a preterist, I wonder? One verse of the Bible? In Matthew 24, 34, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say unto you, this generation will no means pass away until all these things take place. Now, Jesus had been talking about future things. I got that. He had been talking about prophetic things. I get that. And then he said, This generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Like, that's an explanation somehow. And I'm scratching my head saying, <laughs> What did you just say? Okay? He says, realize eschatology based itself on one verse. Really? Do you think preterism is based on one? We found one verse in the Bible and we just camped on it. This is good. Let's stay here, people. This proves our point. This is such a joke. This is so discrediting to say something like this. All right? Almost every time the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ, it has a time statement. Almost every time. There are hundreds of verses that I'm hanging my hat on. Not one. But he says, now Jesus had been talking about future things. He had been talking about prophetic things. And then he says this. And I'm like, yeah, that is what he said. I don't get what his point is there. That's the verse. Truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He dances around this verse. He throws it out because it, you know, it's just one verse. This is an important verse, people. If you look at the way Yeshua uses the word generation, look up the word generation every time He uses it. It's always, always used of contemporaries. The people He's talking to. The Jewish people of His own period. He says very clearly, listen, I say to you. Who's the you? Somehow we've jumped thousands of years and he's talking to us. So the people he was talking to were like, we don't get it. Oh, it's not for us. 
You mean the, in a couple thousand years the people who read this? Yeah, that's who I'm talking to. I'm just using you guys as a prop. No, to you people. I say to you, this generation will not pass away. Every time this is used in the New Testament, it refers to something near in terms of time or distance. Yeshua doesn't say that generation. Now, you could argue if that would have been in there, all right? Referring to a different generation than the one he's speaking to. He says this generation. He uses the near demonstrative. The people to whom he's speaking. So this verse strongly supports preterism, but it's only one of hundreds of verses that place the second coming in the first century. One of hundreds. All right, John goes on. This is a very increasingly popular view. I wish. <laughs> I wish you were right there, John. Now watch. They renounce the plain meaning of Scripture. Wow. I've heard this before, though. I've heard this argument before. When we left faith, I heard the same argument. All right? They renounce the plain meaning. They renounce every creed, every doctrinal standard, every, ever affirmed by any significant church council, denomination, or theologian in the entire history of the church when they deny that Christ will come back to the earth. Position is so bizarre, you wonder if it should be considered. No, John, we do not renounce the plain meaning of Scripture. We just think soon means soon. Not thousands of years. So who is renouncing the plain meaning of Scripture? Who is? Time statements that are didactic, that are in the text, you want to ignore. You want to dance around. That's plain. Soon means soon. You need to take a course in logic and find out, you know, words have to have some kind of meaning because if soon means 2,000 years, then what does it mean? Nothing. It means any time. Carter goes on to say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, how did he go up? By the way, physically, bodily, in full view, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the way you've seen him, watched him go into heaven. How do you get around that one, Preterist? The way he left is the way he's coming back. Clouds, he's visible, and he's real. And he appears. He ascended in a physical bodily form. He'll return from heaven just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. How do they get around that? They, they deny that he actually ascended into heaven in bodily form. No, John, again you're wrong. Listen, if you're going to critique a view, first learn the view. Okay? You're critiquing a total straw man that, you know, predators don't believe this stuff. We do not deny a bodily ascension. But since you asked, let's go to Acts, John. All right? Acts 1 9. Here's the text he's talking about. And when they had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. All right, we talked about clouds earlier. Keep in mind this cloud idea, all right? And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Yeshua, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The words the same way here are the Greek phrase hontropon. And if you examine the usage of hontropon in the New Testament, it's really clear that the phrase does not mean 
and exactly the same in every detail. Because that's how they take it. It's going to be the same in every detail. But it has the idea of similar. Similar. For example, look at how this phrase is used in Luke 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would have gathered your children together just as, hon tropon, a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you're not willing. Did Yeshua really want to put all Jerusalem under his wing? I didn't know he had a wing. So what is this? How does this work out in exactly the same manner here? So in the same way doesn't mean in exactly the same manner. His coming was not to be exactly as he left in Acts 1.11. is made clear by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Notice what Matthew says about the coming. But as the lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I didn't see any lightning in Acts 1.11. Right? So, which is it? Visibly in a cloud or like lightning? Well, Paul describes Christ's coming this way. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, this is not in the same way as Luke describes it in Acts. There's no shouting or trumpets or anything there. Look at Thessalonians. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. That's different than Acts 1.11. There's no clouds there. we got angels, we got flaming fire, we got retribution. I don't see that in Acts. Notice what John says in Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and one was sitting on it. His name is called Faithful and True, and a righteous he judge and makes war. Okay, we got a problem here. Yeshua's coming on a horse. Not a cloud. Okay, which is it? A <laughs> cloudy horse, alright? Maybe the horse is on a cloud. And they're all coming in together. <laughs> How can anyone say that Yeshua is coming in exactly the same way He left in Acts 1.11? Well, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it just does not add up. He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. The emphasis of Acts 1.11 is that Christ's coming would be a cloud coming. We talked earlier, cloud comings is God coming in judgment. See, in the Old Covenant, during the Old Covenant times, Baal, the false god Baal, was called the cloud rider. That was his designation. So when the Scripture writers write Scripture, they laugh and they go, Yahweh's the cloud rider. Okay, not Baal. Yahweh rides the cloud. And so you see Yahweh coming on a cloud. He's coming to judge. There's destruction. If you see him coming on a cloud, you're in trouble. There's judgment coming. There's destruction coming. And that's what cloud comings are about. So he's lifted up on a cloud, took them out of their sight. And he's going to come in similar fashion. This is apocalyptic language for coming in judgment. Now that fits all the other scriptures we saw because they all talk about coming in judgment. When Luke says Yeshua was taken up and a cloud received him, he's not commenting on the weather that day. Okay, he's trying to tell us. This is a cloud. He's going to come back in a cloud and judge. Now, there is no Scripture that explicitly teaches that Yeshua will return in a physical, bodily fashion. And see, that's what the futurists are looking for. A physical man coming on a physical cloud. Everybody sees him because the marvel of TV. We can all turn on our TVs. Well, I guess we all have to turn them on at the same time. 
so we can all see it, right? And if we just understood the language of Scripture, but this happens when you start in the last quarter of the Bible, you get the language messed up because that language is developed in the first three quarters. If you understand the Jewish mindset, you know what they're talking about here. Earlier I quoted MacArthur as saying, but lately there have been some traditionally conservative, professedly Bible-believing Christians that have attacked the doctrine of the Lord's return. Okay? The appearing. This view is gaining tremendous momentum. It is called preterism. Listen, no, again, John, preterists are not attacking the doctrine of the second coming. None of them. I never heard one that attacks the doctrine. All Christians believe in the second coming of Christ. You know why? It's in the Bible. The Bible talks about it. We just talked about it. You know, a ton of verses. Most of the New Testament talks about it. Listen, to deny the fact of the second coming is to deny the inspiration of Scripture. Because it's in there. All Christians believe in the second coming. We just don't agree on the timing or the nature of the second coming. But there's something you need to understand, John MacArthur, and that's this. To deny the time statements that the Bible gives of the second coming is also to deny inspiration. Because with those verses that talk about the coming, give us a timestamp. And you want to deny all those timestamps, wipe it out thousands of years because it doesn't fit your paradigm, and say, I'm looking forward to still. You got some real problems with inspiration if you're going to deny that. John, if you're listening, sure you are. I know you watch the podcast. Okay? Let me just give you something to close with. John, soon means soon. Okay? If you could just put that in your little uh, bag of hermeneutics and use that when you're interpreting, it'll make a world of difference, people. You know, this is, this is sad to me. It's frustrating to me because he is just, you know, obviously he doesn't know what preterists believe. He's just taking shots at them. Well, they deny the second coming. No, we, no one denies the second coming. We just say the nature of it was spiritual. It wasn't a physical thing, although Jerusalem really felt the physical burden of it. Okay. And we think it was to, for the first coming because the time statements connect that. But it, listen, it's not a verse. It's not just Matthew 24. They all hang on one verse. Oh my word, he said, it's, he's coming soon, he's coming quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here, this generation, on and on and on. I mean, he, like I said, every way possible. It's not like you can make a mistake, okay? If you just had the one, this generation verse, you could argue about what generation it is. It's a futile argument, I think, but you could. But everywhere. He's talking to his disciples. Guys, some of you standing here will still be alive. Well, that kind of narrows it down. But this is what we get, people. Uneducated attacks. A bunch of untruths. And it's sad. This is what people are listening to. Okay? So people listen to cards, they hear this, and then they hear preterism and they want to run because, hey, you guys deny Scripture. You don't believe the Bible. It's sad, people. But that's what's happening today. That's what we're dealing with. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. I pray that, Lord, I was fair in this critique of John, and I pray your people would go back to the original text of John's and study it and look at it and see exactly what he is saying there. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us. Father, I don't feel that we are smarter than anybody else or better than anybody else because we understand this truth. 
but I thank You for opening our eyes to see it, Lord. It encourages me, Lord. You kept Your Word. You did what You said You would do. When You said You would do it. Thank You for the grace to see that, Lord. Strengthen us, I pray. Amen. Jeff. I'm just curious. I've always looked at that verse in Acts from um, Young's Literal. Um, where, what, is, what do you think he's picking up on when he translates that verse as saying, wherever it went, um, that you shall see him the same way you saw him go, you, in the same manner you saw him going on to the heavens. He picks up on, it seems like it's a clapping. The same way you saw him go, you're seeing what you were going on. Where does he get the on from, you know, or... Or is it just... Who says that? Young's literal. Young's? No. I don't know where it seems pretty clear. Gone. He understood it to be, in the manner you saw him go, you'll see him come the same way you saw him going on, you'll see him return. He hmm. seems to tie with the cloud idea. Right. That's well, the clouds are definitely tied. I think that's the whole the whole emphasis there is the cloud thing. You know, and uh, the cloud coming is a judgment coming. He left. He's coming back in judgment. And, uh, Gary. Uh, I mean, stop you. Um, just the um, never put that together is when you pointed out the entrance into the promised land was blocked by a fortified city and the entrance into the new covenant was blocked by a fortified city and it took the destruction of both to initiate the new um, reality for, for Israel I just never, never noticed that before well, good. You learned something. Yeah, I'll forget that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. David? I don't really have a question. I guess it's just more or less now that I've raised my hand. <laughs> I don't know how I was going to say it. Just, good question. Uh, yeah, you, these, um, you know, going on about these different words soon and at hand, and a few weeks ago, you know, you were talking about a, a days as a thousand years, right. and, you know, a thousand years is as a day, and they use these different things, and just especially coming from, you know, Christians, people who believe in God, you know, he created us, created language, everything about us, our being, our entirety, it just seems to make God be, seem so deceitful, like, they're up there going, I'm going to tell Jesus to stay soon, <laughs> it's right. hilarious, you know, like, well, you're right. He made. He knows us. It's not right. in here for no reason, but it's just trying to. Well, that's one thing I try to communicate to people. Like, you know, when that because that verse in Peter, man, there's Lord's. That's a thousand years. I'm like, us. yes, but he's not writing to himself. It's almost being intentionally right. deceitful. Well, if if, if if it's, it's not that, true, right? right. If it's not true. It would be to see. Arguing with some atheist that doesn't believe you believe in God. You but I've had Christians say that all of this, you know, language, who we are, our minds, and you're up here, and it's being written this way. It's like it's a big joke up there they're having. Or right. Something. If it. Right, because it doesn't mean what we're way, saying. You know. <laughs> Rich, you remember the first time we we started the first day the church started. That couple, I think they were both lawyers. Um, I can't remember their names, but they stood up in the back and they said, well, I think the Lord said soon and short. He said that because He wanted every generation to be waiting for Him. And I was like, so the ones that He wasn't coming to, He was lying to, He was deceiving. And they were like, well, yeah, but He was deceiving them so that they would be holy. And I'm like, oh boy, that's a wrong... <laughs> that's going around the horn to get the holiness, right? Let me trick you into being holy. 
And they bought that. I mean, to them, that made sense. Just like we've had people tell us there are some 2,000-year-old disciples, because Yeshua said, some of you standing here will not taste it. So yes, they're still alive. That makes them more comfortable than believing the Lord return. Crazy stuff. Gary? Contagious? It's right that you point out how, how casually some people take eschatology and don't really search out the predator's view. And MacArthur being a, sadly a major voice against it. Well, that's the thing. And, They're and scaring people. what we actually believe. Because we don't deny Christ's bodily resurrection or his, his return to earth. And one of your comments from him said they deny that he's coming back. It's all about his coming back. I know. That's yeah. the thing. We don't deny any of that. See, they just, that, listen, but this, you know, I re, I've listened to his stuff. I'm thinking, I wonder if he read manuscripts from faith way back in the day. Because, I mean, they said, if you, if you, if you were to follow Dave Kirsch, you might as well throw this thing away. Because he didn't even believe in this. And I'm like, what are we starting this church for? I mean, you know, what would the point of all this if we don't even believe the scriptures anymore? But it's lies. You know, you build these campaign on lies, and people hopefully they they get scared enough they don't even look into it. And they were telling people I could sell ice to Eskimos, and I'm like, I wish I could. <laughs> if I could sell ice to Eskimos, what I wouldn't be having that kind of problem. People believe me, Anthony. So I guess that's why I guess he wants to be in his right all the time throughout the day because even if you read just one verse, it could be a, a long verse or a short verse. Each word is very important because it's written <coughs> in the Bible. So I guess we got to go back to like the, the Hebrew words, what that word means in that context. So it's very important. Well, that's what study's all about, yeah. right? I mean, he wrote it in a context for a purpose. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Cheryl. Tell Anthony your counterfeit bill. I use that all the time, where they study the counterfeit, well, not counterfeit, the real bills. The real bills, right. Yeah, yeah the, the <laughs> government, the FBI, they will study the real dollar bills so they can spot a counterfeit. They don't study counterfeit. Their counterfeits are all different. They study the real, and then when you know the real, you spot a counterfeit. And that's the thing, when you know the truth, you know, I mean, we have read over these time statements for a lot of years, you know, and because you, you heard someone explain them. Well, it doesn't mean, you know, they give you some explanation, you know, and so you blew it away. And finally, you took them seriously and you're like, wow, you, you wake up and it's like, this is amazing, you know. But I just, I'm really disappointed. Like I said, you know, I use John a lot because he's a very popular teacher. People know him. He's putting this stuff out. But I owe my style to John. I mean, I studied everything he put out for years and years and years. That's where I got my verse-by-verse -verse whole context of doing that. And I'm thankful for that. I love it. And he's one of the few teachers out there that goes verse-by-verse. -verse. All right? I think he just, you know, he's caught in a system that he can't get out of. Okay? So he stays in that system, but... Oh, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, he will say he believes in it, and I believe he does, but, you know, again, when you're, when you're saying that, you know, it's important to believe in the second coming, but as far as the time of it, nah, it's not important. Don't, don't ignore all those time things. Ah, you know, how do you do that? You know? They, they turn it on its head, okay? 
they spiritualize the time statements and they literalize everything else, you know, which is crazy. You know, they, they're doing it opposite. All right. Rich? I'm just going to make one comment about, uh, you know, it, when, uh, when Dave talked to me about preterism 22 years ago, you know, in addition to being a very crazy idea at the time, it, it didn't take very long for me to adapt that position because there are so many things that fit together once your eyes got open to us through. And so many things got stamped together. And um, in fact, that's one of the things we were accused, I was accused of very early in this by our former elders, partners, was the fact that how could you go that way so fast? And I'm thinking like, well, just because it answers a whole lot of questions I had, you know? <laughs> but, um, but I was thinking about what uh, Gary just said about the um, uh, about the, the destruction of Jerusalem parallel with the destruction of Jericho. And the fact that, that the other thing that happened when the people went into the land, into Jericho, it said the manna stopped. And so the idea is, is that they were no longer having to depend on spiritual gifts. They're no longer having to spend on this supernatural manna. And now that's all done because they're home. The church is complete. And that's what happens in the second coming. So that's another example of the fact how, you know, it just all fits together. Yeah. It just all fits right. together. Yeah. It does. And that's, you don't need, you know, when I was a dispensationalist, any of you remember Dake's study Bible? I had Dake's study Bible and notes and, and graphs and charts. And, and I'd scratch my head and like, I don't know, how do they get this, you know? Like the two comings that MacArthur talked about. He came, well, he's supposed to come in the future, but he's coming and then he's leaving and he's coming again. I just, I couldn't fit it together. This, like Rich said, just... Oh, okay. Now it makes a lot of sense, you know? Does it answer every question? No, I still have questions, okay? I'm just a lot less, and I'm a lot more sure about the view I hold now because preterism's simple. Just look at what it says and believe that. And understand, one of the basic principles of hermeneutics, audience relevance. If you get that down, okay, it's not written to us. You know, I mean, Johnson, the book of Revelation, he acts like it was written to us today. The book is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's God saying, I'm done with this covenant city. I'm, I'm, it's over. It's violated the covenant. It is done. I'm going to wipe it out. A new city's coming. Okay? That's not people of physical city. And that cracks me up. You see the, <laughs> you've seen the diagrams of the physical city? I mean, the size it would be. You know, it's like, here's the earth and it's coming down. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy. You know? Because people want to make it literal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, there's a lot. We're going we're gonna to finish this because I think there's some, you know, we can't neg neglect this verse because, okay, it says you won't be ashamed, you'll be confident and not ashamed at His coming. Well, He already came. We don't need to worry about that. I don't think that's true. I think we still need to be, we need to abide so when we see Him, we'll not be iskunomai, okay? Disappointed. But we will be confident. So we're going to talk about that next week. So, uh, alright. Let's stand together to be dismissed in prayer. We're not going to close the song because this preacher talked way too long today. Father, thank you.
for your family. Thank you for the opportunity to get together and study your word. Lord, we thank you for illuminating us to the truth of your word. I pray it wouldn't cause us to be proud, but we would humbly share with those around us the exciting truth that you kept your word, Lord. You did exactly what you said you'd do. We rejoice in that, Lord. Give us the heart of Bereans, Father. May we dig, may we study. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to comment or attack other views that we do not understand. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.